I invite you to take your Bibles and let's open it to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, and we're going to start with this very important, very controversial chapter in the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 2. But the controversy is only later. It's not for this Sunday or the next Sunday, but um, Lord willing, a few Sundays from now we will look at that text. But today we're going to just look at verses 1, 2, 3, 1 and 2. And then next week, continue with 3 and 8. So this will be a part 1, and then next week, part 2 as well. So let's read together God's Word, 1 Timothy 2, from verse 1. This is the reading of God's Word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings... And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, please help us as we study your word, Lord, to understand it. Help us above all, not just to be the hearers of your word, but the doers as well. Encourage us in our prayer life as we pray for kings and those in authority, our government, And Lord, please, um, may we be a church that is rich in prayer and frequent in prayer, Lord. Please help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we remember the the setting of 1 Timothy in Ephesus, the leaders of this church have now gone astray. And then it probably goes without saying that if the leaders of the church is going astray, that the church desperately needs to be restored If the leaders have lost their way, or in the words of Paul in chapter 1, have made shipwreck of their faith, the the church needs new sailors to, to take it away from the rocks, away from the dangerous rocks to deeper waters. And this is exactly what Paul is starting to do now in chapter 2. He will now instruct Timothy how the church should look like, what God wants for his family, for his church to look like. How should we act in worship how should men and women act in worship and what are then the qualifications of a pastor of an elder and a deacon that is all where Paul is going from chapters 1 to 2 and it's all climaxing in chapter 3 verse 14 just look at chapter 3 verse 14 Paul says I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God So this is why Paul wrote 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want you to know how God's family is to be run. What are God's family rules in this in the church? And through that, the whole church must become the church that God has intended her to be, to be an instrument of grace for the nations. That is God's uh, will in his desire. And in these first seven verses, you can barely miss God's global heart. His heart for all people. Did you notice that? Did you hear how often the word all appeared? Just look at it again. Verse 1 at the end, we should pray for 
all people. Verse 2, the, um, for all who are in high positions. Verse 3, God, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved. Verse, uh, verse um, 5 and or verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Do you see that? So the emphasis is, is very clear here. A church that has, where false teaching has infiltrated, where legalism is reigning, all the do's and don'ts of, a, of, of legalism will cause us to look inward, but God wants us to look outward. He wants us to look away from ourselves and our little world and our little, even our little church and look to the nations, look to all people everywhere and have a heart for them because God has a heart for all people. So that's what the gospel will do. False teaching makes you inward focus. The gospel makes you look away from yourself to Jesus and to other people around you. That's what God wants for us. And it all begins with our duty to pray and to live a quiet life. Now we're going to talk about what that means. So we're going to look at our duty in this text and then next Sunday look at our conviction. Our duty, and next Sunday, our convictions that we have to have. So first, we'll consider this Sunday our duty as a church. And number one, they, I'm going to list three duties for us that we need to be doing as a church. First, pray for all people. That's the first duty Paul says we should be doing as part of God's family. Look at verse 1 again. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So when Paul says, first of all, he could mean that this is the first of a series of instructions he's going to give, like first this, second this, third this. But it could also mean first in the sense of this is the most important thing to do as a church. First of all, do this. This is the greatest thing you should do as a church together is pray, pray, pray for all peoples. Now, of course, both of those options could be true. But I think by the fact that Paul just begins with this shows how important he views this as for us as a church to be praying. How, what a high priority prayer should have in our corporate worship, in our gathering like this, in our private lives. We should be praying. We think of Jesus' words. Remember what Jesus said when he overthrew the temple, the tables in the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what God wants his house to be like, God's family. He wants to smell the frequent fragrance of our praying together as God's children. Now that strikes me because I would have probably written something like this. First of all, preach the word. Or first of all, love one another. Or first of all, no good theology. But Paul doesn't begin there. He says, first of all, pray for all people. This is top of the list. Notice how Paul emphasizes with all the plurals. Okay, In verse 1, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, plural, intercessions, thanksgivings, so it's not just one prayer, one supplication, one th- it is many, a lot, variety, rich, richness, okay? We should not just make requests to God, we should pray for other people. Often our prayer life is very narrow, right? We just pray for me, myself, and I. But God wants us to be praying and thanksgivings and supplications for all people, for many other people besides yourself, 
Also, we are to focus on thanksgivings in our prayer and that for others. Notice for whom are we praying in verse 2, 1 and 2. It says, do these things for all people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now here already we, we are challenged in our prayer lives. What's the first word of the Lord's Prayer? How does Jesus, how is he teaching us to pray? What's the first word? Our Father. Even the rest of the prayer, give us our bread, daily bread. Forgive us our debt. You see, so your prayer life should be bigger than you. It should be bigger than you and your problems and your life. Now, God wants you to pray about your problems, right? That's not, I'm not saying don't do that. But God wants our souls to be large, to be big. Okay, and no doubt when Paul says pray for all people, that at the top of those people should be your immediate family, the people that's closest to you, and your church family, right? Those are your closest neighbors. You need to be praying for constantly. Now here, when Paul says, not just for the church and your family, but also for those outside the world, he says to, to, for kings, those in authority. Now, let's remember what environment the apostle Paul was in. What kind of a king was ruling at this stage? The king... And these in high positions were not Christians. The emperor Nero was reigning and he was infamous for killing Christians. And one thing that's very, one of the famous examples was using Christians as torches in his garden parties. This was the Nero, the king that the church is to be praying for. It reminds us of Jesus' command in Matthew 5 verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and Pray for those who persecute you. One of the easiest ways to love an enemy is to pray for them. Is to pray for them. And, and, and when I say pray for them, not pray that God would judge them, right? <laughs> love them by praying that it might go well with them. To bless them. To pray for their salvation. And why is that? Why pray for such a wicked king? Why pray for such a wicked government? Shouldn't we just ask God to destroy the government, to take the government away, right? Well, the very first thing God does when you pray for others is change you. Your heart is the first thing God starts to change when you pray for enemies and wicked rulers and governments and kings. Like John Chrysostom said so beautifully, no one can feel hatred Towards those for whom he prays. No one can feel hatred for those for whom he prays. Because did you notice at the end of verse 1, what should we also be doing with kings at the end of verse 1? Just notice that. Thanksgivings be made for all. Okay, pastor, slow down. (laughs) It's like, is it like one of those things you just have to say thank you, even though you don't feel thankful for the government or for the king? You know at that Christmas party when you get that present you didn't really want, right? And your parents tell you, say thank you for Aunt Tilly for the knitted socks. You have to say thank you. It's like, thank you. But it's not really a thankfulness in your heart for this thing. Now, should we just lie and thank God for the ANC, right? Or even though you don't feel thankful for the government, 
No, beloved, the Lord doesn't want you to be a hypocrite. That's, this is important, right? We shouldn't lie at any time, especially in prayer, okay? Because it's dumb to, to lie in prayer. God knows your heart. He sees your heart when you pray. He knows the secrets of your thoughts. So how, can we, how, can, how could we ever thank God for a wicked king or wicked rulers? Well, Romans 12 verse 2 gives us a hint. Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't, don't think like this world. Don't act like this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by tasting you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the key is to think differently about the government. We need a theology of government. We need to know what God says about government. And that would come underneath our bitter, angry hearts to help us to give thanks to God. The easiest thing in the world to do is to complain about the government. Guess what? You don't even have to be a Christian to do that. Everybody does it. This is what it, when, I, when it takes is don't be conformed to this world. Don't even be conformed in the complaining of the world. Think Christianly. That's the, to complain is the natural, worldly, human way. But there's a Christian way that requires the power of the Holy Spirit to do. And the first thing we need to start thinking differently is to answer the simple question. Who has put the government in its place? Yes, there might be kings in this world, but don't we know a king of kings who's ruling over the kings, who can raise up kings and who can put down kings at will, who does whatever he pleases? Right? Sunday school answer? Yes, we do. It is God. He rules. I love this wordplay. He governs the governments. He rules over all. He puts governments in place, even the wicked ones, even the bad ones. He is the one that puts them in place. We are reminded of Isaiah 40 verse 21 to 23. It says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. So at the very least, you can do this. Thank God that he is working through our government at all times. Right? The good news is that never stops. It's not like God sometimes works through government. Does he work all things together for good, except what the ANC does? Does he work all things for good, except the injustice and the corruption that happens? No, beloved, all things in this world, whether good or bad, is in the hands of your Father who loves you. Uh, in the hand of God who loves you more than the birds, and yet he cares for the birds. So, beloved, I want to give you this medicine for your bitterness and your anger. Really, not just for the government, for anyone in your life. Think of anybody you might be struggling to forgive or with anger and bitterness. Have you ever stopped to thank God for that person? Thanked him 
that even that person, God is busy working together for your good. Even that enemy, even that difficult person. Children, there's a lot of children here in the service. Have you thanked God for the parents you have? The parents you have. Husbands and wives, when was the last time you thanked God for your wife and your, your husband, your children, your boss, your supervisor, those in high places, those in authority? So let me say in passing, if we are to thank God for the wicked government and bad governments, how much more are we to thank God for the good ones? If we are to thank God for wicked people, how much more are we to thank God for good people? Right? Good in quotation marks. None is good. No, not one. Right? You know what I mean. I hope you know. If you don't know, come ask me. So if your parents are Christians, thank God. If your husband and wife is a believer, thank God. If your children show signs of the fear of the Lord, thank God for them. Let them hear you say that in prayer. Now, after that, is thanksgivings all we do? No. Okay? That's half of the prayer, right? So I have to start there because I think that's where we struggle the most. But the list, that's last in the list. We should be supplications and prayers for these people, okay? So what do we actually pray for kings? What do we actually ask God for wicked rulers or those in authority? What are we praying for? The first clue is found in verse 3 to 4. Look at what we should be praying for if we have this mindset. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. Surely it makes sense if God desires all people to be saved, that the first thing we should be praying for is for people to be saved. Right? Oh, Lord, save our president. Save him, Lord. May he turn from his, from his sin. May he find you. Is not 80% of our problems due to the fact that people don't fear God. Now, I'm saying that as a theologian, not a mathematician or a politician. I'm saying as a theologian. Right? Is it not? Why do people, why is there corruption? It's because people think they can get away with it. They don't fear God. But if people are saved, they have a fear of God. They know God is going to judge me for the way I rule and the way I I exercise my office. I can't just be doing what I want to do. Therefore, when you pray for people to be saved, it is the solution we need. It will probably not solve all our problems, but I think most, if I have to put a bet on it. But we also pray, not just for salvation, but we pray for practical wisdom. We pray for justice, that they would govern with equity. And that is seen in the implication of verse 2. Look at verse 2. We pray for these people so that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we pray for them because their job, the king's job, the state's job, is to provide a stable society where there can be peace and quiet. So we need to pray very specific prayers regarding their role. So we think of Proverbs 14 verse 34. Proverbs 14 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So we desire governments to be righteous, to be just. So what kind of prayers might this include? Well, what kind of laws do we want to see in our country that would lead to peace and quiet? So we pray things like for for religious freedom. If we have freedom of religion, 
We should be already thanking God for that. That is not to be taken for granted. We pray that our government might punish evildoing, that they would carry the sword well. God has given the government the sword. They should use it against evil, against evil people. We pray against all corruption. We may even ask for another government if the current government is consistently failing. Lord, please. But we also pray for God to bless our government. And that's one reason why we do this corporately. This is in the setting of a corporate of worship together as God's family, as God's church. And therefore, he says, pray for these people. That's why we pray every Sunday for the government, every Sunday for another country. We want to bring all people to God, to his throne. So one application of this is, when we pray on a Sunday, don't think in your mind, oh, here comes the prayer again. Let's just get through it. No, lean forward in your soul and listen to the prayers intentively and pray with the person. We need to say amen in our souls. This is an important area of our worship and we dare not neglect it in favor of more entertaining options. And also, if this is what we have to do in God's family, surely we should be doing this in our physical families as well. Pray for all people. Pray for your church members. Pray for those in authority, those in rulers that you know of. We should be praying regularly for these people. Our hearts should be like the Jews in the exile in Babylon. Remember what, what Jeremiah told them to do. Jeremiah 29 verse 7. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Very common logic. So this is our duty. Pray for all people, especially those in authority and in high position. So number two, second thing we need to do. We need to live a quiet and a godly life. <laughs> okay. So when... When Paul says pray so that you may live a quiet and godly life, the implication is you should be living a quiet and a godly life, right? That is one thing you should be aiming to do. That should be one of our duties, our goals. And we see that in verse 2 when he says that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life. Now, what is the idea there? How does a peaceful and a quiet life look like practically? Well, Paul immediately defines it for us. Look at what he says in verse 2 at the end. It's a godly life, and it's dignified in every way. To be godly is to live a life centered upon God. Your mind and your life is God-centered. You live for His glory, not your own. So, And this is very easy for us, right? Or very easy for us to miss. It's easy for us to compartmentalize our lives. So, yes, I'm a Christian on Sunday or when I read my Bible, but then in these other areas, I can live the way I want to live. That's not godly. So, yes, at church, oh, we live like Christians, but back at home, we think God is not there anymore. Now I'm free. Now I can do what I want. Unfortunately, many even church leaders, pastors, fall into the trap, right? They are amazing men of God. In public, but they are devils at the home. Or they just consistently neglect their families. They, they don't spend time with their wives and their children. In the name of ministry, in the name of something else. But we should not be like that. We should be aiming for godly lives, living before the audience of one. 
Why? Because God sees everything we do. There's no area of your life that God doesn't see. God is everywhere present. He hears every thought and intention of your heart before you think it, before he, you, 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 yeah, you think it. Everything is naked and exposed to the one to whom we must give an, an, an account. But of course, your godliness doesn't just stay in private. It, it affects every area of your life. The way we do our work, the way we do our responsibilities, our roles in society. All of it must be done with godliness, with the aim to make God look good. This is the idea behind the word a quiet life. The way Paul used this word elsewhere clarifies this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11. Paul says, aspire to live quietly. Now what is that? To mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3.11. It says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Do you see the idea? What is a quiet life? It's a hardworking life. It's a life full of hard work so that you can earn your own living and are dependent on no one. That makes God look good when you just work hard. Okay, that's quietness. If you always have to beg for bread and beg for your food and you have to ask for money from someone the whole time, that's, that's not quiet living. You have to be independent. Now, of course, that doesn't um, mean that we can never do those things, but this should be our aim. And when we live like that, when we work hard, we make the gospel more attractive. Another aspect of this life is to live dignified. Look at verse 2 at the end. It says, godly and dignified in every way. That, that carries the idea of living a life in such a way that it earns the respect of outsiders. So when you just live your life with seriousness, with joy, you do your work well, people outside, you, you earn the respect. It's a dignified life. So here's a quiet life for a student. If you're a student, if you're still in high school, if you are studying, all of I know semester has started, everybody's anxious for that. What's a quiet life? Attend to your studies. Okay? Don't live the student life. Stop that. Right? That's not quiet living. You're going to regret it. A quiet life of a stay-at-home mom is to be diligent in raising her children without always handing the children over to somebody else. A quiet life for a man is to work hard during the day so that others don't have to pick up his slack, right? So, yeah, because you didn't do your job, now I have to do your job. That's not quiet living. This is God's will for the ordinary Christian. Now, I say ordinary because sometimes there's this idea that to just be a plumber or to just be an accountant or to just be a doctor or to just be whatever is somehow not honoring and pleasing to the Lord. It's somehow less spiritual than the pastor preaching God's word or the missionary going into the mission field, doing the Lord's work, quote unquote. Now, if I read my Bible correctly, the Christian life is a very ordinary life lived for the glory of God and the good of other people. That is the way God expected ordinary Christians to live. So in short, your work is important, whatever you might be doing. 
Now, do you see why we need a stable society? Okay, we need a stable society in order for us to be able to work hard and to earn our own living. So we want God to give us kings and authorities and rulers to give a stable society, not primarily that we might just have a comfortable life. That's not the idea here, that we might just have peace and quiet and just live our lives without evangelizing and world missions and those type of things. Like, like the motto of probably most, most Americans and probably most South Africans as well, let's see who can go to heaven with the most toys. Right? No, that's not why we want a stable society. We want a stable society that you and I can be rich in good works, rich in godliness, rich in sharing the gospel with people around us, rich with world missions. Right? If there was peace in Rome, like Paul could have traveled the roads because there was stability, generally speaking, that he could travel to places to do missions. And that's the last duty we have in this text is we should be evangelizing the lost we should evangelize the lost that's the flow of thought right pray live quietly and godly and then paul just says in verse 3 this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth so that's really at the bottom lord give us a society so that the gospel can continue to spread. That's what we want. We want the gospel to be on the highways. And we need a stable society for that. And then when we live quiet lives, godly lives, we do make the gospel attractive. We make other people look at our lives and wonder what's going on. Notice what is the incentive for us to do this in verse 3 again. It says, this is good. And it is pleasing to God. Now that word this refers to verse 1 and 2. To pray, to live godly lives. When God sees believers doing that, it pleases God. It makes him happy. It is a high privilege to serve the most high. And that should be our feeling. The Christian life should not be this begrudging, complaining constantly feeling sorry for ourselves that we have to give up all these things for God. That's not how God wants us to live our lives. There should be joy in our living and praying that others might see that. As one commentator said, it is not merely accepted, acceptable to God when his children responds to his invitation to draw near in prayer, but he welcomes them and takes pleasure in their fellowship and their expression of dependency on him. God finds pleasure when we pray. He finds pleasure when we live our lives and work hard for his namesake. So as we close, we have some soul searching to do. Are we doing this? Are we fulfilling our duty? Do we pray for all people? For kings and rulers? Do, we pr- do you even pray just for the people nearest you? Close to you? Do we live quiet and godly lives or are we lazy? Are we constantly, do other people constantly have to do the work for us? And do we share the gospel, not just with our lives, but with our words? Do we make time for people to hear the good news that there is a God who desires all people to be saved, including the people around us? Let's ask the Holy Spirit who knows our hearts.
that we may repent and do these things. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we fail in these things, Lord, so, so often. Lord, sometimes we are too self-centered. We just think of ourselves in our prayer lives. We live a life ultimately for comfort and not for your kingdom and your glory, for people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, Lord, please forgive us for these sins. May we be faithful on our knees. Lord, help us to have a plan, a plan to pray for the nations, a plan to pray for governments and kings, a plan to pray for our enemies, those who persecute us and make our lives difficult, that we would pray for them, intercede for them, thank you for them, knowing that you even work people and their choices in our lives for our good. Lord, may we live and lead quiet and godly lives. May we be hardworking as a student, as um, employed people, Lord, or even if we are on pension, Lord, to be working hard, whatever we f- our hands find to do, that we would do it with diligence and to your honor and, and glory. Lord, please restore us where we need to be restored as a church. May we view prayer as one of the top priorities for us. And may we yeah, generally um, attend our prayer meetings if possible and to so, Lord, lift up our prayers to you. We pray these things for your namesake.